views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. What is it tonight? Morphine or cocaine? Well, I can strongly recommend a 7% solution of cocaine. Would you care to try it? No, indeed. I speak not only as your friend, but as a medical man. How can you risk such damage to the great powers with which you have been endowed? I cannot tell you how it clarifies and stimulates the mind. Yes, and destroys it in time. <laughs> you can close that drawer. You have made the wrong diagnosis, doctor. I have my stimulant here. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, March 10th, 2011. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. To black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright And welcome to the show today where, as always, the number to call is 519-661-3600 if you want to join in on the conversation or email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org to express your comments, your questions, your observations. We always welcome them and we read them all too, don't we, Robert? We do indeed, yeah. We like getting them. Yeah. Today on the show, kind of an eclectic show, number of subjects uh, towards the end of the show we're going to actually uh, pose the question are we ready for a new political party do we need one well i think so i went and started one <laughs> so i've got a pretty biased view on that but the subject came up this week in the news and i got in on the discussion we'll broaden that near the end of the show also freedom of speech what is the proper limit to put on freedom of speech is there one we'll be talking about that later and guns and self-defense seems to never be a cop around when you need one eh? that's what you're saying robert yes and, and probably a cop around when you don't need when one. you don't need one <laughs> and of course drugs doctors and the police state now this one's got me a little bit curious robert uh, especially what you said when you came into the show this morning. You were thinking about calling this the Monument to the Dead or something like that. <laughs> Strong feelings on something here? Oh, well, I don't know. I'm just trying to get my head around the whole health care debate. It's uh -huh. a, an issue that I haven't really investigated in great depth. We've talked about a lot of stuff on this show, but and you've touched on health care quite often yes. on the show. Um, I haven't done that uh, to any great degree, but when I do investigate it, I find that it's um, very uh, alarming. Uh, much like uh, anybody else out there saying that they're very alarmed with the healthcare state and the state of healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, but just go back to that clip that uh, we introduced the show there. That was from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, Sherlock Holmes, starring Jeremy Brett mm -hmm. as uh, Sherlock Holmes, the epitome of the portrayal of Sherlock Holmes. If you ask me, I was think Jeremy so Brett. Too. I love that. Uh, I that do like other show. Sherlock Holmes, but the, he was he was the one that would most stand out in my oh, mind. Oh yeah. Too bad yeah. he passed away. Yes. So yeah. young. Um, now, when Conan Doyle wrote that, and he was a doctor, by the way, himself, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and he wrote The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes over a hundred years ago, the notion that a person could abuse mind-altering drugs or frequent opium dens, that was a common theme throughout his uh, stories, 
That was common as um, today, our young people taking ecstasy and oxycodone. Um, what Doyle probably could not have envisaged or condoned would be the government threatening to put doctors in jail for up to a year for prescribing such common pain relief narcotics as codeine or morphine. And yet, as of November of last year, 2010, that is precisely what can happen to any doctor or pharmacist in Ontario if they run afoul of the new Ontario Narcotics Safety and Awareness Act. Oh boy, that sounds like trouble. <laughs> oh, it is. And uh, failure to comply with even the slightest aspect of this act could result in your doctor or your pharmacist being fined up to $50,000 or spending a year in jail like a hardened criminal. Now, the act itself, if you haven't heard of it, I'm not surprised. I hadn't until just recently. This act was quickly and quietly rammed through Parliament with the approval of all parties. Now, say the name of the, the act again, just in case anybody missed it. It's the Orwellian name of Ontario Narcotics Safety and Awareness okay. Act. Okay. Now, all parties... Everything safety, isn't it? ...approve this. With very little notice in the media, by the way. It was brought to my attention by a longtime fan of Just Right, Anne who read an article by Dr. Paul Leger, a family physician in Newmarket. And thank you, Anne, for bringing it to my attention. Anne got hold of us on Facebook. By the way, you can just uh, go to Just Right on Facebook as well and uh, like us on that. Just go to our homepage at uh, justrightmedia.org and like us there. Appreciate it. Yeah, I've got some more to say about that. Maybe yeah, okay, if I can great. squeeze it in before the end of the show. Now, for the next little bit, I'm going to actually read a letter or a blog, if you will, that Dr. Leger wrote. Um, on a site called doctorsandpatients.ca regarding this particular act and its implications from his point of view as a physician in Ontario. Now I'm quoting here from Dr. Leger. The act is intended to be part of a larger strategy to combat abuse of prescription narcotics and mitigate the repercussions of that abuse. Addiction, an, 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 an avoidable drain on health care resources and narcotic abuse mortalities. I don't know any family physician or pharmacist who would not want to see effective strategies put to work to combat this serious problem. However, in its current form, this act has serious and dangerous flaws. Imagine if you were working in your office and a person entered without a court order or a search warrant and without demonstrating probable cause, seized your files, leaving no copy of them. Their only legal requirement? Return the files as promptly as reasonably possible. Who knows how that long, how long, this is an interjection on part of my, who knows mm -hmm. how long that could be with the government, eh? So given that this is an unreasonable abuse of civil liberties, you might rightly want clarification on how they define reasonable. This invasion of privacy is anything but reasonable, says Dr. Leger. It almost sounds like Germany in 1935 or the USSR in 1980. Actually, I, I wouldn't say it almost sounds like it. It's exactly like it. Who would have thought that that could be in the province of Ontario in 2011? First, the Act gives government-appointed inspectors, in quotes, sweeping powers without the need for due legal process, probable cause, court-issued search warrants, and an uncompromising protection of civil liberties. With this Act, patient safety, civil rights, and privacy rights would all be seriously jeopardized. Under this law, if an Ontario family doctor, like myself, quotes Dr. Leger, is in their office treating patients. Inspectors could enter, demand files, interrogate me on the spot. And by the way, I've read the act, Bob, and they have to answer all the questions put to them by 
the inspector. There's no, let me look it up. You have to answer the questions or you're guilty right then and there. They could interrogate me on the spot and remove the files without leaving a copy. What if the patient whose files they removed is you? What if you have been living with extreme chronic pain and the only tools to manage that pain are prescription narcotics? What if you come to in to see me the following day? I'll have no file on you. With so many patients, there's a good chance I won't remember the details of your medical history. In that scenario, you are at risk. I'll have no records to guide me in providing for your care. Not only that, you... Well, this explains the whole uh, move to electronic records then, doesn't it? So they can send the police in. Actually, yeah, I'm getting and to the... And they won't even e have to go e to the doctor's office after that, will they? They can just, just go online. Well, I think that there is a connection there. <laughs> Not only that the doctors take their own personal notes and have their own handwritten mm -hmm. records, which are probably transcribed later into an e-file type of thing, but um, I'll get into that yeah. a little later, though. So, quoting again from Dr. Leggy, not only that, you, your family doctor, and probably your pharmacist will be under investigation with no access to the files that detail the reasons for your treatment, which includes your use of doctor-ordered pharmacist-dispensed pain medication. This act fundamentally gives the government the right to take ownership of people's medical files, your medical files, not just this government, but any government in the future. To make matters more disturbing... The act is not limited to inspections based solely on narcotic prescription drugs. It would also give the minister the authority to add any prescription drug without review and solely at their discretion. This act represents a serious violation of your privacy rights and, in its current form, is inherently dangerous. Doctors and patients need to fight this, as do our pharmacist, pharmacist colleagues. They are... There are other ways to tackle the problem of prescription narcotic abuse without risking patient safety, abusing confidentiality, and bypassing civil liberties. An excellent place to start involves creating a provincial drug registry similar to the provinces, a registry that is populated by the pharmacies and accessible by prescribers. In its current form, the act is nothing short of alarming. Who do you want monitoring your medications, your government or your doctor? Now, that's quoting from Dr. Leger, who wrote that and posted it on uh, doctorsandpatients.ca. Mm -hmm. Now, to the crux <clears throat> of the matter, this act has already become law. Dr. Leger wrote this before it became law, and he's a, his appeal to us was to help prevent it. But unfortunately, it has passed and has received royal consent, and it is now the law of the land. It was passed on a unanimous vote in the Ontario legislature. It was introduced by Liberal Minister Deb Matthews and supported on a vote of 69 to 0 by all parties, the Liberals, the New Democrats, and the Progressive Conservatives, with Tim Hudak himself voting in favour. So once again, the three parties in power, the Troika, as I like to call them, have banded together to infringe upon our personal rights, endanger our health care, and treat all doctors and pharmacists as potential drug pushers. And that's the way I think that they're looking at doctors. Doctors are drug pushers to the government. Sure. Doctors Good. are drug pushers to Tim Hudak. Doctors are nothing more than low-life drug pushers to Dalton McGinty. Doctors are the enemy of the state when the state has socialized medicine. There's just no two ways about it. That's why in 1993 all the first ministers got together. They said we had too many doctors. Let's limit the supply. That worked pretty well, didn't it? You now have a limited supply because that's yes. their only way they can cut back on expenses. And so what the government's trying to do is limit its expenses by becoming a police state, which is the next stage of socialized medicine, and 
basically take it out on the doctors directly. It, it's amazing how how direct an attack this is. And I and as I heard you explaining this, I couldn't even make sense of it. Who do the legislature? legislators think that the act is specifically aimed against the patients or the doctors like well the only person who can be put to jail or fined under this act are doctors and pharmacists well, that would Anyone make sense because that's where they or... want to cut off the, the money tap right right so this is an act specifically designed to punish doctors and pharmacists no one else there's no other no other person is named in this other than those people except for the patient by the way this act allows for the disclosure of personal information in your healthcare records to disclosure home. it doesn't say it doesn't specify but i, I well, read into put it, it online like there's well i don't know but that i read into things. it that they're trying to say that okay if doctor a is prescribing uh, oxycodone to a particular patient and Pharmacist B is um, dispensing it, and Doctor B C over in another jurisdiction or another town is prescribing the same medicine. The E files get all um, flagged, and um, the government then takes that medical record of yours and gives it out to other doctors, other pharmacists, the government, and well, uh, now, there's now, nothing to stop them. To from a doing point, that. I could understand that where you want to keep an eye on a single patient who's maybe going to different pharmacies and check the records to see if this person is, you know, maybe poisoning themselves, for all you know. That's sort of a, a medical responsibility. More that is than, a responsibility of a doctor, yeah. not of Tim Hudak, not of Dalton McGinty, not of the government. Well, clearly they, they must see some kind of problem to, to instigate something this draconian. Oh, sure. Yeah, there's lots of people out there who go from doctor to doctor to get prescription medication and they abuse it. There's no question about that. But for the government to turn around and say, okay, you prescribed this particular medication or narcotic to this patient, we're going to second-guess your opinion on this person. You didn't know that there was another doctor prescribing this medication, therefore you're going to jail. What do you think a doctor's going to do? With this act, every doctor will now second-guess his treatment of his patient. When a patient comes in in desperate need of pain relief, the doctor may think that it may not be worth it to prescribe anything listed on the Canadian list of controlled substances like codeine or morphine, even marijuana, by the way, mm -hmm. um, but may instead prescribe an aspirin, mainly because they could go to jail if they muck it up, mm -hmm. if they don't know what's going on. So once again, socialized medicine with the aid of e-health is jeopardizing our health. And this all stems from the socialist concept that a person is not an end unto himself, but a means to another person's end. The choices we make for good or ill are our choices to make and not somebody else's. Those who seek to limit our freedom, to make bad choices, do not do so for our sake, but for their own. I mean, they seek to change the world to suit their own image as to how the world should look at our expense, at the expense of our own lives. So next, you know, just recently they unveil a, a statue of Tommy Douglas, the father of socialized medicine in this country and CBC's uh, hero of the year, yeah. <laughs> hero of the year. What did they call him? The Greek Canadian or some such thing. Unveil a statue of Tommy Douglas in Weyburn, Saskatchewan. Now, there should also be a monument, I think, to the growing number of people who must now live in pain because the government mistrusts their doctors. And you should put that monument right next to the monument to the thousands who have died waiting for life-saving treatment due to health care rationing in this country, thanks to Tommy Douglas, thanks to the conservatives, thanks to the liberals, thanks to the NDP, that troika of socialist thugs. So, to whom can a person turn 
to rid ourselves of those who would rob doctors and pharmacists of their dignity and honor when all three political parties in this legislature unanimously support this bill. And you know, Bob, you're going to be talking about that a little later on, aren't you? I think I am. Our choices. Okay, so Mm. uh, why don't we go for a little break here, and on the other side, we're going to talk about something completely different. Let me ask you this rhetorically, which means don't answer me when I ask it. (laughs) Would crack be so bad? And would people think so harshly of crack if it were called crackle? No, I don't think so. No, I don't. Hey, you, where are you going with my stereo my DVD player? Two by crackle. All right. I can't say mad at you. Then we would have the crackleheads. Wouldn't that be glorious? Yes. There'd be these wonderful mythical creatures we could tell our children and our grandchildren about. Who are the crackleheads? Why the crackleheads shine your shoes when you're sleeping? Why is the sky blue that crackleheads paint it blue? They're up all night from doing crackle. some bill. Since when is a revenueer company? <laughs> Mr. Clampett, I'd like you to meet Mr. Lamp. I'm pleased to meet you, Mr. Clampett. How do you do, Mr. Landman? Uh, since you're a friend of Mr. Drysdale's here, I reckon you're welcome. But as you can see, uh, we don't cotton the revenueers. I'm not a revenueer, Mr. Clampett. I guess back in the hills where you come from, I'd be a tax collector. Back in the hills where I come from, you'd be a lot younger. Oh? Was the climate that healthy? Oh, just you wouldn't have lived to get this old. <laughs> Hey, welcome back to Just Right. Actually, actually, from the Beverly Hillbillies, unless anybody's not really grown up with the Beverly Hillbillies, it was a great show. And I wonder if they could even do that show again today, you know, considering the such a sensitive nature of people's sensibilities these days. Or you're going, oh, you're I, offending the got, hill people. We've got some pretty offensive shows out there. I don't think we have to worry about that. In prime time, though, I don't know. Yeah. But I love that show. Now, recently in the news, and the only reason we played that clip, of course, was because a granny and her gun went to shoot off the revenuers. Uh, recently in the news, there have been a number of good, examples. Good reason to have a gun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a number of examples of individuals uh, being charged and brought before the courts because they dared to defend their lives or their property. On uh, November 4th show, you remember, Bob, I talked about the case of David Chen in Toronto mm-hmm. who performed a citizen's arrest and was himself arrested for doing so. And who has since certainly attracted the attention of the Prime Minister of the country. Who yes, who actually changed the law. To change some laws. It's amazing. They unfortunately, that was the show we lost the archive copy of. So. Oh, unfortunately, yes. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, earlier this week, the Crown dropped charges against a uh, Port Colborne resident, Ian Thompson, who took shots at individuals in the act of firebombing his house and uttering death threats. He had uh, been charged with pointing a firearm, careless use of a firearm, and two counts of careless storage 
of a firearm. Now, on Wednesday, the Crown, uh, cited, citing the likely, uh, little likelihood of a conviction, withdrew the more serious charges of pointing a, and careless use of a firearm. But the two careless storage charges remain. Now, to many who side with Mr. Thompson, and I'm one of them, he should not have been charged at all. But the police and Crown saw fit to drag him through a two-year court battle for daring to use force to repel a deadly threat against his life and property. Luckily, he wasn't injured and uh, the house wasn't burnt down, but certainly could have been a lot worse. They apparently didn't mind that he used his firearm. They just thought that he should have kept it locked in his safe while he used it. Well, that's a good, good trick. And that's under the Firearms uh, Firearms Act of this country. So you have to be a magician. Yeah, yeah. You can have a weapon to per, for self protection, but um, keep it locked up even while you're using it. Brilliant. It's erroneous to think that the government has the sole legal use of force in this country. When people banded together to form a society for their mutual protection, they gave the government the liberty to use force to act in retaliation against criminals. Yes. Now this act of giving police the right to use force does not mean that we as individuals have given up that right ourselves entirely. We still retain the right to defend ourselves, our lives, and our property. There are those who think that we should disarm ourselves and hope that there's a police officer around when someone comes to firebarm our home and break into our house and rob and kill us. Now, these people believe that there would be more lives saved from careless use of firearms than those saved by people who successfully fight off potential murderers. With the same logic, we should ban the automobile. And by the way, that's not even logical because statistics do not show that. Oh, is that right? I'd love that's to see correct. those. No, they, they've been. We're all, a lot of states are now um, licensing handheld weapons. Hidden, you know, you can carry them around in the city, and they find that the rates of crime go down dramatically. I guess that's, that's what I would figure too. Right. But I'm just saying that these people think. That's what well, I said. Well, sure, it's, it's linear <clears throat> thinking. It's not thinking it through. It right. Is, yeah. Let's get rid of all the weapons. Yeah. Therefore, there'll be no weapon. It makes accidents. perfect sense. No weapon. How can somebody shoot at you? That's, that's, that's right. That's, that is logical. Yeah. So <laughs> if you ban, if you ban, same reason, same logic. If you ban the automobile, thousands of lives will be saved every year. We abandoned cars and took to our bikes. That's right. Uh, yet we don't give up our cars for these lives because the freedom and benefit of the car far outweigh the loss of life caused by its use. And it is because of uh, firearm accident statistics, which are, as you say, erroneous, mm -hmm. that people must be left to the mercy of thugs and murderers. And I'm not talking about the legislature there. These are the people with the guns, the real guns. <laughs> Now, some say that a ban on handguns prevents handgun accidents and is therefore worthwhile, like I say. But the price for these accidents is that we are now helpless to defend ourselves against the kind of low lives who attacked Mr. Thompson in Port Colborne. And while it's not against the law in this country to defend yourself yet, the Firearms Act and its many regulations as to the care, storage, use, and transportation of weapons have made the practicality of defending yourself with a firearm nearly impossible, if not impossible, without ending up in an expensive legal battle due to cops and prosecutors who erroneously think that they have the sole authority to use force in situations of defense. Police departments are reactive in nature, and I think people out there should understand that. They are reactive in nature. They act only after a crime has been committed to bring perpetrators to justice. There are occasions, of course, when they do prevent crimes, but not the kind of crimes we're talking about here. 
something your your neighbor coming uh, uh, to your house with fire bombs or breaking into your home to uh, to rob and murder you. Not those kinds of crimes. Crimes of terrorism, perhaps they can prevent other kind of crimes like that. Yes, but not these kinds of crimes where we had to take up a weapon to defend ourselves. Yeah, I think in a free society, the police's function is less defensive force than retaliatory force. Retaliate, they react. You know, they're 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 ju- they're the instrument of justice. Exactly. Instead of you going out and you know starting a Hatfield and McCoy kind of yeah. a battle, right? By the way, that's the way it should be. They can't intervene when somebody is thinking about a crime or, or you know, uh, uh, walking down the street and say, "Oh, I think you're going to be breaking into that house." Well, if the person states an intention, they need, exactly. then, then they, they can. need probable cause to I'll act. I'll be talking about that at the end, or right. actually next, next, next little bit. I mean, cops don't stand on your front doorstep to thwart any potential robber. They don't hide behind every bush in the park to prevent every rape. They only appear after the deadly deed has been done. Now, we ourselves are the front-line defense against criminal acts, and if we are not able to carry weapons to protect ourselves, then we've given up one of the most fundamental rights a person has, the right to their life. While I'm not necessarily, Bob, I'm not necessarily advocating that everyone should carry a revolver on their hip while they go to the marketplace, I do believe that we have the right to have a weapon at hand or on our person, especially at home, should we so desire, to protect our lives and property. We should also have a reasonable expectation that we will not be treated like criminals if we, when fully justified, shoot someone in self-defense. I agree. Oh, I agree. Thought you, might. <laughs> <laughs> you, thought, you thought I might. Eh? <laughs> I feel much better now that you agree with me. No, it's an issue that comes up repeatedly, the whole self-defense versus uh, or, you know, gun ownership and things like that. And um, I don't own a gun, never have. And uh, yet I would feel safer in a society knowing that the people who have guns are considered law-abiding citizens rather than just the criminals. Of course, most people in society, the vast, vast majority, are law-abiding citizens just willing to get on with their lives mm-hmm. and respect people. Now, Robert, uh, on the other side of the break, we're just about to go to the break here, but before we do, we have a, an introductory piece to our subject on the other side, which is, where do we draw the line on hate speech? And I mentioned this um, a couple of weeks back that I had met, that I had appeared on a new show with Christine Williams. It's called uh, On the Frontline, and um, it's a half-hour kind of a news documentary kind of show. I understand the episode I was on, which was taped on February 7th, but was aired a few weeks later, has already been aired a few times. And I must say there was some pretty contentious stuff in there. The subject, of course, was all about religion, Islam, Christians. And uh, one of the other... I I appeared on the show with uh, Farzana Hassan uh, of the... um, you know, the Muslim Canadian Congress, formerly of the Muslim Canadian Congress, and uh, with Christine Williams. But before that, she interviewed a fellow named Mark Harding. And Mark Harding is a Christian pastor who uh, found himself subject to an interesting hate crime sentence before Human Rights Commission in which the punishment included Islam indoctrination. Now, i got to tell you, I was almost a little uncomfortable playing this next clip. You and I had a conversation about yes, it. Yes, because it's, uh, it is offensive in its uh, well, content. Well, in, in some ways, you can tell For Chris, some people. Christine was a little bit uh, perturbed by what he had to say. But when mm-hmm. we come back on the other side, you'll hear myself and Christine and Farzana uh, talking about uh, Mr. Harding and the whole basic issue of... Uh, freedom of speech. Where do you draw the line? Good question to ask. We'll be back after this. 
2002, evangelical Christian Mark Harding was distributing flyers outside a public high school, Weston Collegiate Institute in Toronto, to protest that school's decision to set aside room for Muslim student prayer during school hours. He was subsequently charged, convicted, and sentenced to 340 hours of community service under the direction of Muhammad Ashraf, General Secretary of the Islamic Society of North America, the same leader at the center of the controversy that broke only weeks ago where over $600,000 for the poor was squandered. Harding was also condemned by former president of the Canadian Islamic Congress, Mohammed al-Mazri, who made headlines across the nation for calling all Israeli civilians over 18 fair target, and whose organization launched a human rights complaint against McLean's and Mark Stein for promoting Islamophobia. Mark Harding is with me now to tell his story. Mark, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Christine. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Mark, I have with me here an article that was posted in the World Net Daily talking about your story. Right. The first thing I'm going to ask you is, those flyers that you were distributing, mm -hmm. why were you doing so? Uh, the school that I distributed in the 50 homes around the area was uh, allowing Muslim students to hold prayers during regular school hours. Uh, this was the, the whole problem, and unfortunately, everything else uh, came after it. But that was the intent, was to just let the neighbors know that Buddhists can't, Jews can't, Christians can't, but Muslims can't during school miss time. How is that possible? Knowing a little bit about Islam, because I'd been studying and evangelizing the Muslims on Bloor Street in Toronto for uh, about 10 years at that time, I found that Islam was very, um, uh, very satanic. And, and I felt this way. And the reason I felt this way is because the Bible tells me that Muhammad was a liar and an antichrist. And I now, did you did you include that in the flyers? No, no you did I, not include that. No, but I okay. but I did include. Uh, Mark, I'd like to know what yes. was included in those flyers what because was we're trying to determine here yep. why you're up on hate crimes. What I what I put in the flyers was the type of abuse that uh, and persecution that Christians were going through in Islamic societies, and I wanted to compare. I even asked why uh, are we allowing students to teach this stuff in schools and allowing giving out Korans to anybody they want, English copies of the Korans, and teaching kids the same stuff. Well, that's what I put in there. I put in the persecution, what I've found from the Toronto Star and the Sun, and I put those reports of persecution to Christians, and it was it was horrendous. The persecution and so I put that in and I compared and asked why are we allowing this is the Quran is the Islamic faith is the Islamic teachings the same in an Islamic society where persecution of Christians seems to be escalating as in Toronto is it the same and apparently yes it's the same you were convicted yes. on hate crimes yes I was. tell us about what that sentence was the sentence after everything was said and done was to go to an Islamic community and do 340 hours of community service in the Islamic community. When I got to the place, uh, they said that I wouldn't, I thought I'd be painting walls and doing stamps, putting stamps on letters or something, community service. Um, they had me sit in a little room. And the imam said that he'll be sending in three more imams and, and I could have all the books I wanted from there extensive library but if I said anything bad against Islam if I said anything bad about the Quran if I said anything bad about the Muhammad that he w was my supervisor he was in control and he would send me back to jail
Welcome back to On the Front Line. Joining me now to discuss the question, where do we draw the line on hate speech? Robert Metz, president of the Freedom Party of Ontario, and Farzana Hassan, author and former president of the Muslim Canadian Congress. Thank you both so much for joining me. Thanks, Thanks for, for having us. us. Now, the two of you heard the interview with Mark Harding, yes, and we'll start off at the point where, now in his opinion, he said, quote, that Islam, what he'd read, according to how his Christian beliefs are, is satanic. Now, there are those that will say this is promoting hate, that you should not be saying these things in public. What we're trying to establish here is, where does one balance the line on what constitutes hate speech. Let's start with you, Farzana. Well, I think anyone should be able to say whatever they want about any religion. I think they should be able to question scripture. I think they should be able to question religious doctrine and enjoy the protection of the law. Anyone, any child, any man, woman, adult should be able to say, well, Muhammad married a six-year-old and that was inappropriate and enjoy the protection of the law. Uh, when it comes to saying that, well, you know, Muslims perhaps follow a satanic god, uh, by implication that would mean that perhaps all Muslims, you know, are satanic or they're following. And then, you know, that does tend to castigate all Muslims. And I'm not sure if that constitutes hate, hate speech. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a very tricky situation here. And, and I think that anyone has the right to say that. They have the right, you know, to, to freedom of conscience and speech in the matter. Um, but I think that I personally, I would exercise some sort of self-censorship in public when it comes to that sort of thing. Robert. Yes, I, I think I think their line is crossed between hate speech and hatred itself. Is when you start to threaten direct action against someone um, to threaten their life, liberty, or property. Um, before that, basically, opinion should be left left alone. And the only thing we have to fear in terms of of speech laws is our own governments. And I don't think the issue is so much religion as such as it is uh, the liberal environment that we've come into that is seems to be tolerant of totally conflicting values and then on top of that not allowing those values to have their conflicts on the verbal scale and then they become more dangerous. I think that we see in any country that practices censorship um, violence is, is higher than it is in those countries that don't practice censorship. That should teach us something. Do you see that there's a confusion in society on the right to offend versus hate speech? I think that there is a confusion. I think that the law is a bit fuzzy on that. Um, uh, I, I think that the Criminal Code of Canada, and I think that Article 318, 319, uh, does define, uh, you know, what hate speech is. And it says that, well, you know, incitement to violence constitutes hate speech. And also communicating hate in public. Now, what exactly is that communication? That's the question mark. Exactly, and, and, I, and I think that's where the confusion is. And I think that um, the law needs to describe that a bit better in, in, in clearer terms, I think. You see, and in my humble opinion, and I want to hear your feedback based on this, when one hears Mark Harding, for example, say that it, it's satanic, that is his opinion, and some people will find it very offensive. He has the right Given to say that, it. he has the he right, has to, the say right to say that. Now, I can't see that as inciting hatred. That is inciting violence. But suppose as a result of him saying that, somebody comes forth during the same distribution. I'm giving you an example here yes. of those flyers mm -hmm. and punches out a Muslim, for example. Then does one say, well, what he did 
constitutes hate speech and it incited violence. And that was my and that's point. that's where the fuzzy boundary and, is. And that was my point, that if you say that, well, you know, the Muslim God is a satanic God, then by implication, all Muslims follow a satanic God, and, and that, that can generate some sort of resentment or hatred towards Muslims. And it does castigate the Muslim community, uh, uh, you know, as an identifiable religious group. So, uh, you know, that's where I think that it's, it's, it's sort of borderline, and I think that that's where the Lord needs to be a little more clear about yes, what exactly yes. constitutes hate uh, speech. Yes. It's been my observation, you know, even with Terry Jones in, in Florida, we right. saw what happened to Geert Wilders in Europe and other people like him, that the thing that's being attacked in their cases is the sensitivity of the groups that they're criticizing. And apparently, I think that sensitivity is being given too much, cre too much uh, credence. It's, it's almost an oversensitivity, almost as if it were being used as a way to manipulate the debate or to end it. Yes, and I would tend and to yes. agree with that completely. Here's a major issue that I see. There's a lot of major issues, i got to tell you, oh boy. around this one. Uh, welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. I'm Bob Metz, and I'm with Robert Vaughn talking about where should we draw the line on hate speech. We'll hear a little bit more from that just in a few moments, in fact. But, you know, I had to make a... You know, it, it was a very quick show. I couldn't elaborate on a lot of points that I might otherwise have elaborated on on that show. And... You know, the issue I wanted to make clear was that, uh, you know, where, when, when I say that you're, you, you draw the line on hate speech when you threaten life, liberty, and property, it was not so much the line on speech itself, but a line of action for the police. If I, if I for example, threaten your life and you call the police, they have a right to arrest me, but they don't take away my freedom of speech, mm -hmm. right? They, it's because of my freedom of speech and what I said with it that put me in trouble. You don't go on, you know, if somebody threatens to kill all whatever, Jews, blacks, you name it, you know, um, then, then the threat is not about freedom of speech. It's, it's, an act, it's a threat of violence, and that's what you're reacting to. Would you agree? Oh, exactly. And so, you know, I was just, so in fact, um, I'm, I'm arguing that such speech should be used as evidence of an intention to commit a crime and prosecute it as such, not as a free speech issue. That's the main thing. But, of course, the real crime concerning the prosecution of hate speech under law is, is the whole thing about threatening to disturb the peace all the time. And that's a tough one, you know. What if what you're saying is perfectly legitimate, but whenever you say it, it bothers so many people, they all uprise in violence. And although they're the instigators of the violence, and they're the ones with the problem, you're the one that gets, you know, gets into trouble. That's an issue, isn't it? It is, you know, and you got me thinking about this issue when we were talking about it the other day. Um, in one dimension, for me, the limit, if there is to be such a use of the word when it comes to free speech, the limit on free speech is free speech. If you think about it, you make a point, the only way you can um, have any sort of justice is mm -hmm. to make a counterpoint. If you make an argument, you have to have a counterargument. You have to let people speak their minds so that you can basically uh, tell them how wrong they are. Oh, I agree. And if you can't have that debate, you know, I think I point out in an upcoming clip that the countries that, you know, have less freedom of speech are, tend to be more violent. Yes. Is, is there, is there uh, you know, a connection there? There's a corollary there, a correlation and, there, rather, yes. And, of course, another point that comes up, that will come up shortly, is, is, you know, I think that when governments censor, it's not just the speaker's right to speak that is being violated. It's the listener's right to hear the message. And, you know, when I, whenever I hear something is censored, then perhaps I 
assume would not be offensive to me but might be to someone else, you know, it, it makes me angry a little bit because I'm thinking, what is it the government doesn't want me to see, hear, know, or whatever? And, of course, that, that, that causes more curiosity about of course, certain things, most, too. Some of the most successful movies and books are those that have been banned. <laughs> That's right. And, and here we are, you know, at the root of the problem, I think, is the West's... Uh, very weak and unprincipled philosophy embracing all these conflicting cultural values. By the way, I just want to make one point Mm -hmm. out there to our listeners who think that this is something from the left wing. Um, If you are thinking that you can rely on the conservatives or Stephen Harper to come in and and right these wrongs that we're bringing to your attention, you're wrong. Stephen Harper has been put on record as basically saying that he has no intention of doing anything about these kangaroo courts, putting people Mm -hmm. in jail or making them indoctrinated into Islam because they are offending people. So, uh, again, it's part of that uh, socialist troika out there, the uh, three governing parties uh, in one. It's like a trinity, isn't it? Uh, you know, I a find holy it, trinity. I find this, this, this man's punishment just outrageous. Oh, you yes. know, to, that it includes Islamic indoctrination. I mean, you can punish people with certain things, but my goodness, he's already made it clear he, he doesn't have any faith in that faith. And this is almost an act of theocracy which, of course, is the combination of faith and force, you know, religion and government. Mm -hmm. And that is the clear and present danger. We already have that situation coming up in our province. And this happened in this province. And it's not the kind of thing I would have thought happened in Canada when I first heard about it. And it wasn't just by a a tribunal either. This went to the Supreme Court of Canada. Correct. Where his appeal was overturned. So this is the law of the land, folks. And so, uh, you know, I can just hear Michael Corrin railing because he 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 always complains about how you can say anything you want about Christians and Jews and atheists (laughs) and anything else. But boy, when it comes to this group, hands off. That seems to be the way it is. But that's what the whole sensitivity game is all about. Now, on the other side of the clip we're about to go to, first we'll hear a little closer on this issue still to go. And then coming back on the other side, um, got involved in a conversation on another radio station over whether we need a new political party. And, of course, having started one, I had a few things to say about it and still do. So on the other side, I put together a selection of six TV ads from my own party, the party I support, the Freedom Party of Ontario. And I would wonder if anyone hears these ads, why they wouldn't support a party that supports the kind of policies that they will hear. And uh, that's something we'll get into because uh, I had some interesting comments. We get usual objections. You know, you've heard them all. Mm-hmm. Well, I start a new political party, you won't get elected, blah, 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 and the whole deal. So I thought we might be able to touch on a few of those things when we return after this. Welcome back to On the Front Line. We're continuing our discussion now on where do we put that line? Where do we balance what constitutes hate speech? On the note of what I was saying before, now when we look at Sharia law and you, Farzana, we came close to having Sharia law, I mean, in a narrow way, being implemented in Ontario. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There are those that will say that we're really not at risk, but we are. The Western right to free speech is being condemned. It's been challenged at the United Nations Conference in Durban 1 and in Durban 2. Right here in Canada, it consistently gets challenged, and we're seeing the fallout in the courts and with the Human Rights Commissions. So I'd like to hear your feedback on that. Where do we go from here? Freedom of speech is a hallmark of, you know, Western liberal democracy. It's a foundational, you know, building block. Uh, of, of Western values, and I think that, that that is one area which 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 needs to be protected by everybody. And uh, we've we've seen examples of uh, you know that being compromised. For example, Mark Stein's book, America Alone, 
you know, was almost banned in Canada. And, and that speaks about, you know, how um, Islamists are proliferating in society and how they want to introduce Sharia law and all. All of that is being challenged here. And, and, and that's a misfortune. It, it shouldn't happen that way. We should be able to preserve our Western values and, and, and you know, uh, promote the idea of free speech. Now, I'm curious. Yes, yeah, go ahead for that. No, no, I was just going to say that there seems to be an anomaly as far as religious groups are concerned because, uh, you know, religious statements are allowed uh, under Canada's criminal code when it comes to uh, hate speech. Uh, and at the same time, people making those comments are protected under the law. So there seems to be an anomaly. Now, for example, a Muslim who is an extremist can come and say, well, you know, I believe in jihad. And jihad is incitement to violence. You know, I believe in jihad against the infidels. Now, Again, you know, the law needs to decide what exactly is hate speech, and that would constitute hate speech. So that there, there, there seems to be that anomaly there, you know, when it comes to religious groups. Uh, you know, what you're saying there is very critical about the language used because inciting jihad is inciting violence. However, there was a Muslim fellow that was charged under hate speech laws, but this was very overt because he was coming right out and saying, on the kill, yes, yes, on the internet, yes. kill the Jews. He was coming right out and using the words kill and using other words of violence, which, is, which seemingly is different, but really is it? When one calls for jihad, is it really any different? It depends on one's interpretation. You hear a lot of different interpretations yes, of yes, the word. Well, and if armed jihad is armed jihad is different. Yes. yes. And if you're talking about that, then definitely it's violence. There's no question. And uh, any call of violence should be regarded as such and treated seriously. Whether one wants to censor everything like that, I don't know that that, that does us much good. How do I know who the threat is if the threat's always being censored? I don't. I don't know that person's opinion. I don't know where they're coming from. I have no way of responding myself to to ideas that I can counter very easily. Thank you very much. Well, I don't need a sense. Because I don't want the show to close today mm -hmm. without mentioning this. Sure. You said during the break, I mean, this has become the icon of the issue that we're discussing here, Geert Wilders. Mm -hmm. Do you think he went too far? Geert Wilders? Uh, no. I, I think Geert Wilders is, is no, I don't know about all the particulars, the things I've heard him accused of, I just don't see him as, as, as doing that. He's, he's pretty much a classic liberal in his philosophy. He's very tolerant and of other fitna, He presented Islam and in a very, very violent light. Do you believe he's offensive? Do you no, think he should I be charged, think, though? No, no, no. I think that he was well within his limits and well within his rights to say whatever he wanted to about Islam. He's, he's very much within his rights to say that, to, to, to question it, to, to question any religious dogma. Ontario's Liberals imposed no-fault auto insurance in 1990. The no-fault system has been a failure. No-fault has forced drivers to pay higher premiums for shrinking benefits. Most of us are afraid to make an insurance claim. A freedom government will change the law. Your premiums will not increase when another driver is responsible for injuring you or damaging your vehicle. Restoring fairness in auto insurance. Freedom Party. On Canada Day, 2010, the Liberal government of Dalton McGuinty quietly introduced the BST, a tax only on beers brewed in Ontario. There's no BST on imported beer. A freedom government will eliminate the BST. That will knock as much as $5.76 off the price of a case of the many fine beers brewed right here in Ontario. Freedom Party. No BS. T. Since 9-11, Canadian soldiers have continued to be murdered by people who believe that government should be the hand of God. 
But did you know that in 2008, Ontario's Liberals and Progressive Conservatives decided officially to open the Ontario Legislature's daily proceedings with prayers to Allah and several other gods? Democracy's enemies must learn that in Ontario, the government has no authority other than that delegated to it by the people it serves. A freedom government will eliminate official prayer in the Ontario Legislature. Freedom Party. Defending Democracy. Ontario's gasoline tax was introduced by the Conservatives in 1925. Last year, Dalton McGuinty started charging HST on gasoline. He even taxed the tax. Two taxes is too much. A freedom government will eliminate the old gasoline tax. That will reduce the price of gasoline by 16.6 cents per litre. Fill her up with Freedom Party. Ontario's Liberals and Progressive Conservatives believe that the top priority for Ontario's electricity system is fighting climate change. Dalton McGuinty's Liberals want to fight climate change by forcing you to pay hugely inflated prices for wind and solar power. Tim Hudak's Progressive Conservatives want to fight climate change by forcing you to pay tens of billions of dollars for new nuclear power generators. We haven't even paid for the old ones yet. I'm Paul McKeever, and I won't spend your money trying to prevent natural climate change. A freedom government will ensure that top priority is given to supplying you with the lowest price electricity available. Dalton McGuinty's Liberals want to ban the incandescent bulb in 2012. Tim Hudak's Progressive Conservatives have wanted them banned since 2007. Ontario has no shortage of electricity. A freedom government will not ban the incandescent bulb. Switch on to Freedom Party. And you can see any of those ads by visiting www.freedomparty.on.ca, plus a whole bunch more. There's almost around 14 there already produced, with another one coming out every week. On a whole bunch of subjects that the other parties do not want to address or are simply on the wrong side of it. And that was one of the issues that came up when I was speaking to Jim Chapman on the other station the other day. I, someone called me and says, hey, have you heard what Jim's talking about? And I tuned in, and the next thing I hear is my name being mentioned in Freedom Party. And I thought I would call in, and he asked me some interesting questions. You know, he was He was really expressing some frustration about how even as a conservative, he's finding the conservatives are no longer addressing the issues that concern him. Who's talking about property rights? Who's talking about all the issues that matter, about our justice system, about, you know, even the, the sensitive issues? The other political parties won't talk about them. And, and it's hard for us, and you know this, Robert, um, having been in doing this for 20, 30 years, to get the word out. And people always wonder, well, how come I never hear about you? How come you're not out there? How come uh, you're not getting more support? You know, you've heard them all, right, Robert? Oh, indeed, yes. As a matter of fact, I've uh, played both sides of the fence at one point in time. I was the president of the London Fanshawe PC Riding Association provincially, and I ran for the Canadian Alliance. So I've I've dealt with these people uh, intimately on a political mm-hmm. basis, and uh, I had to leave it. It was just absolutely... I, I, I knew that there was no difference between the Conservatives, the Liberals, and the NDP. They well, are one and the same party. And, and And that's the issue. So, you know, Jim asked me what was... Why, why that was, and I basically only had time to get into one of the reasons, and that was that the media, the, 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 the traditional media, let's say, the popular media, doesn't really talk about us, about us as yet. 
Now, online, if we go to YouTube, we're the story. But, you know, offline, out, out in the old world of the old media, nobody talks about us. And it was the same thing and the same complaint that the uh, Cal- Caledonia folks, you know, Mark Vandermoss and Gary McHale said. They said, here you have this incredible event going on at Caledonia. Nobody knows about it because the media is not covering it, right? Mm-hmm. Until an author writes a book about it, then the media covers it. Well, you know, and then think, they talk about Another it. thing about the media and, is that they get a lot of their uh, advertising revenue from the government of the day. Well, that's, that is true, and that's part of the problem. The other thing about the media, as I pointed out, was that all newspapers, for example, began generally as part of some political movement. There was a time when the Toronto Star, mm-hmm. to be on the editorial staff, you had to be a liberal, you know, card-carrying liberal member. But that's not the only reason. There's there's a lot of other reasons. And and when we started Freedom Party, we were not under any illusions of getting elected overnight. It doesn't work that way. In the period of, of even the last 20, 30 years, when you're only talking about one election every four to five years, uh, that's only one shot at the can every, you know, twice a decade maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe three if you're lucky, not, not including by-elections. So you have to be around a long time before people even recognize you. The other parties have had a heck of a lot longer time, like in terms of a century, century and a half, compared to a party that's just getting off the ground and starting. It was like, uh, I remember one of our candidates said, Freedom Party's not a fringe party, it's a major party, just getting started. And that's a much more accurate reason. Now, from the voters' point of view, another problem is what we call the hammerhead principle. They aren't going to look at you until they see you in number two position, because most voters vote to get out the number one guy. But the real problem, of course, for a party like us, perceived to be capitalist, free enterprise, and all and what have you, is the conservative party. Be it progressive, reform, united alternative, or just plain conservative, the problem is most people believe uh, that this party and movement somehow represents something different from the liberals and NDP, when in fact that has never been the case. Just yesterday, on, on an open line talk show in Toronto, Paul McKeever was on with former... Um, Ontario Premier Ernie Eves. Ernie Eves, yes. And Ernie Eves told Paul over the air that the purpose of government is to redistribute wealth. What a communist. And literally, literally communism. And, you know, the irony was Paul and Freedom Party were were the instigators of his demise in politics because yes. it was when we put our ad in the National Post that he was forced to call the election and he wasn't ready for it. Yeah. And so I, don't, I wonder if he even knew if that was the same person. But there simply are no parties on the true right in Canada or Ontario that I know of other than Freedom Party, and that's part of the reason we got involved with it. Because when someone like PC Ernie Eves can proudly boast that the purpose of government is to you know redistribute wealth, he's openly preaching communism, you're correct openly and explicitly, and calling it conservatism. That's the scary part, right? And, of course, that's the whole issue. And uh, not the whole issue, part of the issue in terms of the leader, or in terms of voters' understandings. The other issue, of course, is time itself. As I mentioned, Freedom Party's only been around for a while, but we also um, haven't had the time that the other parties have. And, of course, they, they regulate us, and they try to do everything they can to cut us out of the debate. When That's was, a story in itself. When was the last time you ever remember seeing Freedom Party's leader in the leadership debate? You know, he should be there. you shut out of the debate, yeah. That's right. And, by the way, if you do go to um, freedomparty.on.ca um, right now, one of the things you'll see is Paul McKeever's um, very interesting interview with um, 
Steve Pakin on TVO that was just shot a couple weeks ago. Very casual conversation, not about the election as such, but just about what Freedom Party has been up to in a, in a lot of its off-election issues. And, you know, just, just there, what you just heard in that string of ads, you heard an ad about no fault, um, um, the beer sales tax, which sales tax, which most people don't even know about. Mm-hmm. A lot of people didn't even know that this prayer in the legislature issue is going on. The gas tax, an easy way to, to, to take some money off the price of gas. Um, fighting climate change. Give me a break. All the, par- all, all the other parties are still in on that. So, you know, that's why when Ernie Eves says that the purpose of government is to redistribute wealth, he's speaking for all of the parties in and out of the legislature who share that very philosophy, the Liberals, the NDP, and the Greens. In contrast, against the political party, the only political party that believes that the purpose of government is to protect your life, liberty, and property, and not to violate your life, liberty, and property for the purpose of wealth redistribution, (laughs) right? That's why we're so different, and people don't understand that. Then you'll understand why I say all the other parties are completely on the left and and this party stands alone on the right. And, you know, the other issue is, for me and for Freedom Party, certainly you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. People have all kinds of questions they think are unanswerable. Why are you doing this? How will this happen? What about this? What about that? They're all there for them. You just have to take a little time to sit down and listen. And, um, but... If you know, somebody wanted to be a candidate for Freedom Party, how would they go about that? Well, just just you can go right online there, click on uh, "Be the Candidate," um, write us, contact us, anything like that. So Paul McKeever is. We're the talking candidates. provincial election right now, mm-hmm. by the way, because Freedom Party is not in the federal sphere as yet, but we the party is organizing. But it's just interesting, you know, that in his conversation with me, Jim Chapman says that he reads everything that Paul McKeever sends him, everything, cover to cover, everything. Then he asked me, "How come we never hear about Freedom Party?" And I'm thinking. Oh, wait a minute, isn't that the media's job? Isn't that why we're sending you these media releases? Then he said we should simplify our message. And I'm thinking, well, four sentences is not simple enough in these ads? You know, you, you know what I'm saying here? People almost don't want to talk about it, but want some kind of, of, uh, of answer, you know? And I think the problem is that, um, you know, the media likes to turn to conservatives to make the capitalist arguments badly by the way, because mm-hmm. and that's our problem, uh, given their premise of wealth redistribution. But anyways, you can see the problem. Check it out, www.freedomparty.on.ca. Uh, and another thing you'll see there is if you check out our um, Breaking with Tradition dinner, you'll see me and Robert doing just right <laughs> in, a, in a video sampler. And I think that's uh, a lot of people have enjoyed that who've told me that they've seen it. But that's all we've got time for this week. And we'll have to talk more about politics and the upcoming election, perhaps even a federal one from what I hear in the air. Mm-hmm. And we'll be back next week when we return. And we hope you'll join us again on our journey in the right direction. Until then, you know what to do. Be right, act right, stay right, and be right back here. See you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Amazing place, America. The gun laws are incredible. In most of the states there, you have to be 21 years old to buy a drink. But at 17, you can buy a gun. Seems a bit dangerous, isn't it? Get a guy walking into a shop. Can I have a six-pack of beer? Sorry, buddy, too young. All right, can I buy that gun? Yeah, sure. (laughs) Anything else? Yeah, six-pack of beer.